Well, thank you, ladies. Thank you again for the music. Uh, it's over. Man, I don't know. It moves. These weekends fly by, and it's almost over. And I didn't meet a ton of you, okay? Just a few. It's just too quick. Um, but thank you uh, very much for having me here. Um, thank you especially to Yvonne and to Rachel and all the other ladies that um, do so much. Uh, we do these at our church, and I know how much goes into them months and months ahead of time. So thank you for that. Um, I just got very encouraging news from somebody. They said that this rumor that your, hus your husband, your uh, pastor, also teaches really fast. Is that true? Okay, that is good. That took away my guilt for talking fast, okay? <laughs> anyway, um, no, it's been fun. So thank you for all your encouragement and all the smiles that I see. Um, I have greatly enjoyed being here. Again, it's just so wonderful to be with like-minded people who love Christ. Um, I tell people, honestly, my teaching is so simple. Um, all I'm doing is telling you how the Lord has helped me through his word and knowing he will help you too. Um, you've heard the old uh, saying about we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread and that's all I'm doing. Okay, And uh, I, a few months ago I was at a another church and a lady came up at the break and she said you know she said when you teach I feel like I'm in your kitchen and you're just talking to me and I went oh that's that's the sweetest thing anybody's ever said to me <laughs> so I I hope you have felt like you're in my kitchen and I'm just sharing again with you how the Lord has helped me through some of the struggles that are just like yours. Um, so again, thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful weekend, and I will uh, absolutely pray for the Lord's continued blessing on this church, because I know you are a light to this community. Now, as we uh, get into our last lesson, I want you to again turn to your praise passage. And this particular passage um, to me, is one of the supreme pictures of worship in the Bible. Nothing surpasses the worship that we are given in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. So if you have your Bible, please open to Revelation chapter 5. Uh, just very quickly, I will tell you what's going on here. Obviously, the book of Revelation is all about the events of the end time that is ahead of us. They are being revealed supernaturally to the Apostle John. But before the Lord begins to tell him what's going to happen, it tells us that the Apostle John is transported in the Spirit to the throne room of heaven. And in chapter 4, John tries to, be, to describe what he's seeing. And it's really beyond words. He really doesn't even know how to describe it. We see the four living creatures. We see, we are told about the 24 elders. 
which these 24 elders represent the church, the body of Christ, the redeemed saints through the ages. So I want you to understand, if you know Christ, you are in this chapter, all right? You are here someday in this worship service. Now, in chapter 4, what we find are two hymns of praise that are primarily worshiping God as creator. We go to chapter 5, which is where we're going to read. We find three more hymns of praise, but these are focused on Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer and Savior of men. So I'm going to start reading alone in chapter 5, and I'll try to set the stage. And then I'm going to have you come in with me and read aloud in verse 11. Verse 1 says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and that is God the Father on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. This book is thought by most commentators to be the title deed to this earth that implies the rightful ownership of the earth. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look in it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was worthy to open the book. So in verse 2, we hear this angel cry out, Who is worthy? And for a moment, there is silence in heaven because no one is worthy. What does it tell us in Romans 3? There is none righteous, no, not one. And so John begins to cry. He begins to weep. And you know, I don't think John is just crying because no one can open the book. I think he is also crying just for what sin has done to this world ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Think of all the unimaginable amount of heartache down through the ages. Think of all the sadness and the sorrow of life, the countless tears that have been cried through human history, the sickness and the pain and the wars and the death. Uh, you think today of just the horrible, horrible situation over in Ukraine. The sadness and the sickness and the, the death. And so John is overwhelmed with grief, and he's crying. But look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And for those of us who love the Chronicles of Narnia, how can you not think of Aslan here, the great lion? John, the elder says, John, stop crying. Don't weep. There is one worthy. There is only one, but there is one who is worthy. And so John turns to see this great lion, but what does he see? He sees a little lamb as if it had been slain, 
But this lamb is alive, and he is crowned with power and with majesty. And so in verse 7, John watches as the lamb moves to the throne and takes the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and everyone begins to fall down before the lamb. Ladies, do you understand what we are seeing here? This moment in Revelation 5 is the culmination of all human history. All of time, right now, right this moment, is marching steadily towards this moment. Everything has come down to this. And we, those of us who know Christ, along with the saints of all the ages, we are there to witness it. The worthy one, Jesus Christ, is about to take back what is rightfully his. And finally, finally, after these millennia, sin and Satan and death are about to be defeated forever. Ladies, this should thrill your souls. Okay, if this doesn't give you chills, I don't know what will. The Lord has given us so much beauty and so many things to enjoy in this world, but they pale in comparison to what we see here. Colossians 3 says, set our minds on things above, but we can get so enamored of earthly things. We can get so caught up in this world, and in the end, those things will not matter. So if you know Christ today, I am challenging you. Focus on what lies ahead. Don't get so caught up in the distractions of this world that you never take time to think about what is waiting for us. All right, verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. So when the Lamb takes the book, basically heaven begins to explode in worship. First, the elders fall down and sing a new song, and then the vast, innumerable number of angels join in and begin to say, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And then in verse 13, the whole creation begins to erupt in praise because it knows it's about to be redeemed. But that's talked about in Romans 8, that one day the creation will be redeemed. And so everything, it says every animal, bird, fish, rock, Every plant, every tree is going to begin to praise the Lord. In Isaiah 55, it says the mountains and the hills will shout with joy, and the trees will clap their hands. Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And that is what we see here in Revelation 5. It is the entire creation praising its creator. And we can't even imagine what that would be like. And remember, if you truly know Christ, if you have given your life to him, surrendered to him, come to him in repentance and faith, you are
are here. Okay, you are in this scene. You know when you go to the mall and you look at that map and there's always that little triangle and it says, you are here? Okay, you are here. Okay, right here. And so we are going to read this aloud and we're, it's going to be a dress rehearsal because one day we will say it again together. So I want you to read with me starting in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. All right, let's pray as we begin. Father, we can't even imagine what this will be like. It is just beyond anything that we have ever known or seen. But Lord, we know that this is true. And you have told us in your word that this is waiting for all those who know you. And Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your goodness. And Lord, we pray that our lives would simply be pictures of gratitude, pictures of thankfulness to you for all that you are to us. Lord, you are an amazing God. I pray that you would increase our love for you and our love for your word. Again, I pray for these dear ladies. Lord, give them a new love for your word. Just give them the motivation to study it faithfully and to live it out in their lives. Pray you would comfort hearts here, give hope to all of us. Lord, we give you this time, and we just thank you again for your mercy. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. As we start this last lesson, um, I have to recommend a book to you. All right? Um, how many of you, just you can show me with your hand, how many of you have ever read the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Oh, good. Many. Okay. Um, it, for those of you who have not read it, okay, this afternoon, I want you to go on the internet and order it, okay? <laughs> um, that is a great book, and I have based this um, lesson loosely on that book. It was a life-changing book for me many years ago, so I do recommend it. I first began writing this study several years ago, many years ago, after a conversation that I had with my husband. Uh, as you might imagine, at a large church in California, he did quite a bit of counseling. And I remember one night we were talking, he said, you know what? He said, everyone that comes into me has the same problem. Now, it can take a thousand different forms, but it's the same problem. They are all having trouble trusting God in some situation in their lives. Exact same problem. 
And I just kept thinking about that. And I realized at the very heart of the Christian life is the issue of trust. When we get saved, we are putting our trust in God for our salvation. And yet difficulty in trusting God seems to be the universal problem. I've never met anyone that said they never had trouble trusting God in something. And this study has definitely come out of my own journey, and I am still learning. I have learned to never say that the Lord taught me something because he immediately gives me a new lesson. Okay, So believe me, I am still learning. And I honestly, I have barely scratched the surface in this issue of trusting God. Many people have gone through much more than I have. But through his precious word, the Lord has really helped me. And I will today share just a few personal illustrations, only because the deepest lessons I have ever learned have always come through the darkest times of my life. And as I talk about these things today, please understand, I am not doing it lightly or flippantly. There is great sorrow and great suffering in this world. And even when you know God is in control, sometimes there are still no easy answers. In fact, I would say this is the challenge of the Christian life, and that is the issue of trials and suffering and the great heartaches of this life. You have to understand, again, that suffering is inevitable. Job 5-7 says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Uh, think of James. James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It didn't say if. It said when. James knew that they were coming. First Peter 4 says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you. For you're testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is not strange. This is normal. Um, I had a pastor growing up, and he used to love to say this. Um, he would say, okay, let me give you a picture of the Christian life. Here's the Christian life. You've just come through a trial, or you're in a trial, or you're about to be in a trial. Okay? Pretty good description. We must learn to see our suffering as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, this is the passage about the thorn in the flesh that he besought the Lord three times for. He wanted it gone. But in that passage, he says in the end that he was well content. He was well pleased with his suffering. And how often do we say that? Sometimes not. We have trouble being well pleased with our suffering. But how could Paul say that? Well, remember, he's the guy that wrote Romans 8.28. Okay? He knew that Again, the Lord would always bring good out of bad. The Lord was in control, and he understood that when he was the weakest, the most helpless, God would be the strongest in his life. Now, in his book, Jerry Bridges says there are two aspects to trusting God. First one is this. Can I trust God? In other words, is God trustworthy? The second question same words but different emphasis can I trust
trust God. In other words, do I have such a relationship with the Lord that I believe he is with me when I see no evidence of it? So we're going to look at these two aspects of trusting God. And the first one I'm going to call the trustworthiness of God. Jerry Bridges says in his book, if you are going to learn to trust God, you must believe three essential truths about God. The first truth is this. God is completely sovereign. And God's sovereignty is a subject I get more and more passionate about with every passing year. The Bible is absolutely full of scriptures that talk about the sovereignty of God. You see that list in your outline. Again, I had three times that many and just had to pick the best. Uh, Genesis 50. This is basically 50-20 is the equivalent, the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8-28. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. Remember, they had been so cruel to him. Joseph had a hard life. But what does he say? As for you, you meant evil against me. And his brothers did. They meant evil against him. But God meant it for good. God brought good. And I'm sure there were times in Joseph's life when he could not see it, but he knew that to be true. Job 42 says, I know you can do everything and no purpose of yours can be stopped, can be thwarted. Psalm 103 tells us that his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. There is incredible comfort in the sovereignty of God. We live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. But when you are a child of God, when you know the Lord, there are no accidents in this life. If I thought the heartaches of my life were just random things that, that God had nothing to do with, that is what would lead me to despair. But knowing that he has a purpose in it, he has allowed it for a good purpose, understanding God's sovereignty makes all the difference in the world. And I think some trials are so difficult, God's sovereignty may be the only thing that actually makes it bearable. Let me give you a few quotes. Jerry says this, confidence in the sovereignty of God in all that affects us is crucial to our trusting him. If there is one single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. Alan Redpath, a pastor from many years past, there is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to become panicky as I lift my eyes up to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart. No sorrow will ever disturb me. No trial will ever disarm me. No circumstance will ever cause me to fret. One last one by a lady named Margaret Clarkson. The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives 
are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of a sovereign God. And all evil is subject to him, and evil cannot touch his children unless he first permits it. One of my favorite scriptures is Psalm 31, verses 14 to 15. You know, people ask you, what is your life verse? I have like 50 of them, but this is one of them. Um, I love Psalm 31, where it says, As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. And I, I cannot tell you how many, probably hundreds of times, I have had to remind myself of that through the years that my times, everything about my life is in his hands. And everything about your life is in his hands. Another word for sovereignty is an old-fashioned word called providence. Jerry defines it this way. God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all of creation for his own glory and for the good of his people. That shows us in that statement that the purpose of God's sovereignty is twofold. Every Thing that God does is accomplishing not only his own glory, but also the good of his people. Now, let me be honest through confessions here. I tend to be what I call an if-only sort of person. Um, and I used to be really, really, really bad about this, and now I'm only really bad about it. Okay, I've made progress. I was the type that I would, something would happen that I didn't like, wasn't happy with, and I would say, if only, if only I hadn't done that, if only I hadn't said that, if only I hadn't made that decision, um, if only he hadn't done that, if, you know, I would just go on and on, I mean, weeks, months, regretting, second-guessing things. And so one night, I was talking to my husband, kind of confessing this to him, and somewhere in there, it, he had no idea how this was going to affect me, but he said, Pam, he said, don't you believe that God is strong enough and powerful enough that he could have changed what you did or what you said? Don't you think he could have changed your thinking? Don't you think he could have made you make another choice? And I went, yes, I, I do believe that. And out of that conversation came something that I call the three questions. And if you don't get anything else I have said this weekend, if you're sleepy after our wonderful food there, wake up just for a minute. Get this, because I think this will be a more practical help perhaps um, anything else I say this weekend. Here are the three questions. The first question is this. Could God have stopped it? And in parentheses put, yes. Of course he could have stopped it. He does what he pleases. God is sovereign. He can do anything. So yes, he could have stopped it. Second question, and in Texas we would call this the kicker. Here's the kicker. Did God stop? and put, no. Did God stop it? No. 
And I know that because I'm dealing with it. I'm in the middle of it. He did not stop this from happening. Third question, what is he teaching me? What is he doing? What is the purpose? He could have stopped it, but he chose not to. And so he has to have a purpose for it. He has a good purpose for it. I'm telling you, ladies, once you get a hold of the three questions and you begin to apply them in your life, I promise it will absolutely revolutionize how you see your life. It becomes the grid through which you view everything that happens. You can apply it to little things. You know, you're at the grocery store and it's hard to find a parking spot and somebody comes along and whips in and gets the one parking spot that you were about to get. <sighs> okay, you go, uh, could God have stopped it? Yes, he could have. Um, did he? No. I'm going to have to drive around and find another parking space. Um, what is he teaching me? Uh, humility, forgiveness. I need to you know, just smile at her and wave. Um, but anyway, I mean, that's a silly illustration, but you can apply it to anything. But I guarantee you can apply it to the big things, the tragedies, the sorrows, the, the disappointments, the great heartaches of life. You look at that and you say, could God have stopped it? Yes. Did he? got a reason. So, the first truth we, truth we have seen is that God is completely sovereign. What is the second truth? God is infinite in his wisdom. Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Here is Bridges' definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the selection of the best end of action and the adoption of the best possible means for the accomplishment of that action. Now that's a little wordy. Let me simplify it. What this means is that God does what is best for us, and he does it in the best way. Now what is the best end of action for the believer? I think we find that in Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the best end of action, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would become more like him. That is our good. Our good is not comfort or happiness or material blessings, but instead... It's conformity to the image of his son. And in his great wisdom that is so far beyond us, God knows what circumstances, both good and bad, are necessary to produce that result in our lives. And out of his great love for us as his children, he will do whatever is necessary to make us more like him. And you know what I am learning in my life, ladies? God doesn't always give us what we want. He gives us what we need. And because he created us, he knows what we need a lot better than we do. And so we need to learn to trust him. I know you're familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. She is a wonderful lady. I have so much respect for her. I've heard her speak many times. 
if you're not familiar with her, she's been a quadriplegic for over 50 years now. I've heard her speak, and she said this. You know, when I first had my accident, I was, I mean, she was suicidal. She just wanted to die. It was such a terrible experience. She finally, she said, I got to where I could cope with what was could happen, had happened. She said, the Lord even took me past that to where I began to accept what had happened. But she said, but you know what? He even took me past that to where I have embraced what he did in my life as being best for me. And I would not change it if I could. I mean, that's an amazing statement. So ladies, we must learn to trust that God, in his great wisdom, knows what he's doing. He is doing whatever it takes to make us more like Jesus. And how does he do it? The Holy Spirit changes us through the word of God. Now, I'm going to quickly give you um, the only original illustration I will probably ever get in my life. When you hear a pastor give an illustration, I promise he usually got it out of a book or he stole it from another pastor, okay? I did not steal this from anybody, I promise. Um, years ago, back in Texas, I remember I was washing dishes. Uh, we love Italian food. And so we had had some lasagna that night. You know, you've heard that if it ends in a vowel, it must be good. You know, spaghetti, lasagna, manicotti, yeah. Um, all those good things. Um, pizza. Um, and so we had had lasagna. You know how it is with lasagna. By the time you got it in a pan, by the time you get the middle cooked, what's, what is it like on the outside? Usually it's a little crusty. It's a little brown. Okay, but it's great. It's good. You eat it. Um, you take the, the half that's left, and if you're lazy like me, you just put foil on it, stick it in the refrigerator, and leave it. Pull it out a couple of nights later, stick it back in the oven, warm it up. What happens to that first end? Okay, the first end, it's got all that noodles and cheese. Okay, it's black. By the time you heat up this end, this is just black, baked on that pan. So I'm washing one of those pans. And I don't know why. I was just thinking. And I begin to think, you know, I have two ways to get this pan clean. I can either take a, a knife, like a butter knife, and just start scraping all those noodles off. And I will get it clean, but what does that do to your pan? You've got scratches and scars on your pan, but it's clean, all right? But I have another way I can get it clean, and all you homemakers out there, you know, you put a bunch of hot water and squirt some Joy or Dove or whatever, squirt that in there, and you let it soak, right, for a few hours or overnight, and then you come back, you know, later on, and you take one of those little orange things, and just with a little bit of pressure, it comes clean. Why? Because the the water soaked into all that black stuff, and it softened it to where it would come clean. So I'm, I'm still washing, and I don't know why, it just hit me. I'm going, you know what? I am so much like this lasagna pan. I'm just like this. I have black stuff, you know, burnt stuff, just burnt on my pan, sin, sinful thoughts, sinful actions, and it's, it's on there. And... So I kept thinking, I kept thinking, you know, the Bible teaches about the water of the word. Okay, it talks about water, and it says that water has to do with spiritual cleansing. 
And how does that cleansing take place? Through the word of God. Ephesians 5, it says that Christ sanctifies his church and cleanses her with the water of the word. In John 15, Jesus was talking to the disciples and he told them, he said, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So I'm just thinking about this. I'm going, you know what? I'm like this pan. I need to be taking in the water of the word and just letting it roll around in my mind, in my heart, and soften some of that stuff. But sadly, ladies, we do not always respond to God's word as we should. And I believe that there are times when the Lord has to get out his knife and he begins to scrape. And he gets us clean, but there are scars, there are scratches. And I can look back on my life and I can see things like that. And I know what he was doing in my life. And it makes me so sad that I didn't respond to his word as I should have. You know, it's hard to admit, but we are sinful people, and we often need adversity in our lives to humble us. We need trials. We need suffering. You know, the great old hymn, Come Thou Fount, says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We do love God, but we are prone to wander. And the Lord has to come along and sometimes use very hard things to clean us. So we need to learn to be broken by his word. As we grow spiritually, we need to be broken by the word of God so God doesn't need to bring things, heartaches, into our lives to break us. Real, lasting change is often hammered out in the midst of great suffering. And those are the lessons you never forget. So we see in the Bible that God in his wisdom often uses trial and adversity to accomplish his purposes. Psalm 119, wonderful psalm that's all about the word of God. A few verses, it says, and they're amazing. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me, good that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I know, O oh Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Uh, that last scripture will always be dear. Um, as I said, I have four children, two boys and two girls. In between the two boys, there is a five-year gap, um, and right in the middle of that, I had a miscarriage. It was uh, right before we moved to California, and we were preparing to move, and I found out I was pregnant, so we were kind of excited, and I was about three and a half months. I already had a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I remember going to the doctor one day. We'd already been there. Everything was great, look, looking good, and I remember going, and I remember as he checked me, he said, hmm, having trouble hearing the heartbeat, and I thought, yeah, sometimes I have trouble hearing it, no so he took me next door to his little ultrasound machine and checked it. And I remember he said, I'm not seeing a heartbeat. And I remember at that point, I went, kind of got a cold chill and I went, oh. So he sent me across the hospital. So here I am with my four-year-old and my two-year-old trying to uh, be the 
composed nurse, you know, we're gonna walk over there. We go over to the hospital and I had um, an ultrasound over there and I, you know, spoke to the tech and I said, look, I'm a nurse, level with me, is the baby gone? And she said, yeah. So I went back over with my little kids, you know, to the doctor's office and they're running around the uh, waiting room and I had a little pocket Bible in my purse and I just needing comfort pulled it out and the very first verse that it opened to was that I know oh Lord that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me and I was overwhelmed with comfort I knew that was for me and that verse carried me through that whole experience Ladies, we have to come to the point where we, un where we know that God's wisdom is wiser than ours. We, we come to the point where we, we must come to the point where we trust God's wisdom and we believe that what God is doing is best. And we have to stop our insatiable demands to know why know why this has happened. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, I love those verses. My ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. They're just higher. Um, if you are struggling right now with God's plan in your life, if you are struggling to believe that he's doing the wisest thing, let me invite you into Job chapter 38. Job suffered greatly, far more than probably any of us ever had. And he wanted answers. He wanted to know why. And God was so patient with Job. But finally, in chapter 38, God finally says, Job, let me ask you some questions. And he begins to level Job with questions that could not be answered. It's, it's an, you need to read. If you've never read through Job 38, you need to read that chapter. It talks about just the universe. It says, Job, uh, God's asking Job, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you? Uh, where were you when I filled the oceans and I told the waves where they had to stop on the beach? Where were you? Uh, Job, do you command the morning? You know, the sun only comes up in the morning because God commands it. It talks about the light and darkness. Job, do you know where the light and the darkness live? Where is their home? Uh, it talks about the rain, how God commands the rain and the hail. I love the verse about the lightning. It says that the lightning comes and presents itself before God and says, here we are. Where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to strike? Ladies, I will tell you, the lightning does not come to me and ask where to strike. And it doesn't come to you either, but it does to him. God runs the entire universe, and yet I have the audacity at times to go to him and tell him, I don't like the way he's running my life. So I need Job 38. It reminds me that he is God and I am not. It reminds me how infinite and vast he is and how small I am. When you ponder Job 38, there is no reasonable response but just to fall at his feet and worship.
in the end, we must learn to trust God more than our ability to understand his ways. God doesn't answer all his questions, because I think if he did, we wouldn't even understand his answers. The Bible states clearly that God uses suffering in our lives. It's very clear about the benefits to our trials. And again, I wish we had time, but please, please don't toss aside all of the scriptures here, okay, in this booklet. Please take these and read all the benefits of what God does through suffering in our lives. Uh, Philippians 3.10, the last scripture I've given you, this is where Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And I want to quickly comment on that, uh, that last scripture. Um, this is a story for another day, so I'll try and summarize it as quickly as I can. When my husband and I got married, I thought he was a Christian. He looked like one. I think he thought he was, but he was not a true believer. And we embarked on five of the most nightmare years you can imagine. And I do not exaggerate when I say that many marriages would not have made it. Our Somehow God held us together. But those were very desperately unhappy years for both of us. And during that time, God used that to teach me that I knew a great deal about God. I was brought up in church, but I didn't really know him. I was a believer, but I did not know him deeply. And during those years, just of my misery, I began to pray and to cling to his word as I had never needed before. And two passages became very precious to me. One was 1 Peter 3, where it talks about how a wife is to deal with a lost husband. And the other one was Philippians 3.10, about knowing God. And I used to sit there and just read that scripture over and over, that I may know him. Just what does it mean? really know you. In the end of the five years, God was so merciful. He saved my husband. And for me, during those years, he just taught me to love his word and to begin to learn to love prayer and going to him in prayer. And, you know, I never thought I would thank God for those years. If you told me, Pam, someday you will thank God for this, I would have said, you're crazy. Never, never. This is horrible. But you know what's so funny? Uh, God knew. God in his wisdom, he knew that someday I would be a pastor's wife. At that point, my husband was a pharmacist. I was a nurse. I had no idea he would ever be a pastor. I had no idea that in the years after that, we would have scores of couples sitting in our office whose marriages were falling apart, and we could try to help them. Uh, I could never have known that, but he did. And, you know, we could talk to them about, you know, reviving a marriage that is dead. We could talk to them about commitment and forgiveness. And it was not something I read in a book, okay? It was something that I had lived through. And it's just one of those ways that God uses bad, you know, sin even for good. Now, I'm not grateful for the sin of those years, but I am grateful for what God taught us. Again, Job, as he went through things, he could see God more clearly. Job 42, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
There are many things that only suffering can teach us. You probably, many of you have the old classic called Streams in the Desert. There's a quote in there. It says, there's a divine mystery in suffering that has a strange and supernatural power. No one has ever developed deep spirituality or holiness without experiencing a great deal of suffering. Sorrow is the great teacher. Suffering brings us face to face with God, and it makes us seek truth. So God uses trials for good, and what are the benefits? We depend on God more. We learn to persevere. We have empathy with others who are suffering. It gives us an eternal focus, and it deepens our relationship with God. How do we respond to our trials? We must humble ourselves first. And you may think, well, I'm not proud. You know how pride manifests itself in, in trials? It's in this thought. I know because I've had it. I don't deserve this. Okay, that is pride. First Peter 5, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We think we don't deserve it. Ladies, do you know what we deserve? What we really deserve? We deserve hell and death and punishment forever. That's what we deserve. So we must humble ourselves and accept trials as well as blessings. Just like Job told his wife, shall I accept good from God and not adversity? Anger at God reveals pride when we think we don't deserve something. So we humble ourselves. Another thing we do is run to the Lord. He is our Think about the Psalms. The Psalms say he's our shelter, our strength, our shield, our rock, our high tower. He's our fortress, our stronghold, our deliverer. But my favorite picture in the Psalms is the refuge. He is the refuge that we run to. Uh, David tells us to wait on the Lord, cry to him, trust in him, pour out your heart to him because he is our Psalm 57, 1, be merciful to God, to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. Where does the world go? Where do people go that have, don't know Christ? They don't have anywhere to go. They, they run around and they go everywhere. They go to drugs and psychiatrist and the latest fad and uh, Dr. Phil and Oprah. They go anywhere they can, but there's no answers. We are God's children, and we go to him. Now, I love Elizabeth Elliot. Um, recommending books, okay, I can recommend every single book she ever wrote to you, okay? I love her. She is one of my heroes. So buy all of Elizabeth Elliot's books. I've heard her speak many times. And I heard her say this more than once. How would I have ever known that God was my refuge if I had never needed him? So I think he allows things in our lives to teach us we need a refuge, and the refuge is him. So we run to him. All right, quickly. God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. The third major truth we have to believe is that God is perfect in love. I've given you scriptures there. God has loved us with an everlasting love. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
And again, in this area of God's love, there is something very important I want you to understand. If you are angry at God, now we never want to admit that. Sometimes it's really hidden deep down. But deep down, we're a little angry at God because of what he has allowed. Understand this, that anger is only a symptom. That is not the problem. The problem is that you don't really believe that God loves you. Okay, if you understood how much God loves you as his child, you would never be angry at him. You know, our thinking is so important here. We have to be careful that we do not forget God's love for us or become resentful or bitter about what happens in his life in our lives. And again, our thinking is so crucial because our thinking determines our emotions. Our thinking determines our behavior. Just very quickly, I'll tell you about my dad. Uh, my dad was a college professor. I grew up in Houston. And uh, he was a wonderful teacher, wonderful Christian man. Uh, he often taught at our church, but sometimes he would not be teaching. And I don't I don't know why, he would go down to the nursery. He would sneak down to the nursery, and he would find the little kid that's crying in the nursery. You know, one of them starts crying, and then they all start crying. Okay. He would get the instigator, okay, the ringleader. And he would pick up that little child and go rock them or go sit on the floor and play with them. I don't know. He just liked to do that. And uh, it was a little folktale around our Baptist church. They'd say, oh, you see, Dr. White was in the nursery this morning playing with the kids, and that was my dad. But you know what? My dad has never rocked my four children. He never even saw them. He went to be with the Lord a couple of years before my oldest was born. And I have to confess, there's been some hard moments during the years as I've watched my father-in-law, who was also a wonderful hold my newborns, play with my toddlers, build a relationship as my children grew up. And I just wished one time I could have seen my dad with my children. And again, our thinking is so important here. And it's not our feeling. Okay, I know how I feel. I still miss him. Okay, it's been 40 years and I still miss not being able to call him. And, my, and our reason, our human reason cries out and says, how, how was that best? How was that best that my dad would never know the joy of his grandchildren? How was it best that my children would never know a godly grandfather? And you know what my answer is to that? I don't know. His ways are higher than mine. But what I will tell you that I believe with all my heart is that it was best. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that it wasn't best because God always does what is best for his children. So remember this, ladies. We, do, ladies, we do not look to our circumstances for proof of God's love. What Christ did for us on the cross is evidence of God's love. That is a love that will never dim. That is the supreme love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. 
and there we see his love. This is a fallen world, and we do not look to our circumstances for proof of God's love. So in a trial, quit focusing on your problems. Begin to focus on God and his great love for us. Let, let me give you a, okay, let me give you some advice. If you want to be miserable, completely miserable, focus on yourself, okay? Focus on all the things in your life that are not what you want. You know, don't, you know, not happy with your husband, not happy with your kids, not happy with your job or where you live. Just focus on that for a little bit, and I promise it works every time. You will be miserable, okay? So you don't want to do that. Focus on the Lord. All right, quickly. Uh, what's the second issue? We talked about the trustworthiness of God, the responsibility of man. Can I trust God? And so I call that the responsibility of man. How do we learn to trust God more? How do we know he's with us when we don't really feel like it? First of all, I must study God's word. We must study God's word. We must love it. Um, Proverbs 22 has a great verse, and I've probably read this a hundred times before this jumped out at me. It says, Proverbs 22, 17 to 19, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, talking about the wisdom of God, his word. Apply your heart to my knowledge, for it's a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Let them be fixed on your lips so that. That's one of those so that's that you need to pay attention to. That just jumped out at me when I was reading one day, so that your trust may be in the Lord. Why do we study God's word? Just to be smart? Just so we can, you know, brag about our Bible knowledge? No, we study the word so we will know him more, know him in a deeper way. And when you know him in a deeper way, you will trust him more as you study his character and you study what he has done for us. You will trust him more. So we study the word so we can trust God more. We store up truth in our hearts so it's there when we need it. Um, that same Bible teacher in college that I had many years ago, he used to say this. He would hold up his Bible and he would say, a Bible that is falling apart probably belongs to someone who is not, okay? So we need to have Bibles that are falling apart. Uh, read the Word, study the Word, listen, memorize, store up, store up uh, the Word in your heart. Back in that college class, he encouraged us, and we memorized chapters of Scripture just to store it in our hearts. Uh, read books about the attributes of God. I've given you several there. Those are also very important because this helps us to have a high view of God, and having a high view of God is important. And I know you hear that here in your church, the importance of that high view. People who have a lot of fears, I have found, have a very low view of God, and therefore their problems are huge. When you have a high view of a transcendent God, your problems get very small, okay? So we study, absolutely. We must pray. We must choose, all right? We choose to trust him. We pray faithfully all these things we need to do. When it comes to choosing our choice, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and he can help us to make right choices no matter how we feel. 
We see David, King David, he chose many times to trust God. Remember all those psalms where he's in depression at the beginning and then by the end he's praising, oh Lord, my heart is steadfast, I will praise you. He chose to trust God no matter how he felt. Uh, we see Mary, the mother of Jesus. I love Luke chapter 1, where after the angel had told her what was going to happen in her life, I love her submission. She just said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Do to me whatever you want. I am your slave. Just utter submission and choice to trust. Um, the, prophet, the prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 3, where it says, The fig tree will not blossom. There will be no fruit on the vines. There will be no cattle in the stalls. And you have to understand the setting of this. This was an agricultural country, and God had shown Habakkuk that his whole way of life was about to be destroyed and wiped away. I mean, if I have no cattle in my stalls, no big deal. Okay, I've never had cattle in my stalls. So this is a fill-in-the-blank verse. You could fill this in with what is the worst thing you can think of. You know, though... I get an incurable disease, though, you know, my husband die at a young age, though I never get married, though I can never have a child. You, you fill in the blank here. What does it say? Even though all these things are true, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Do you hear the choice, the choice to trust? So again, trusting God is not a matter of our feelings, it's a matter of our will. And I can choose to trust him even when I don't feel like that. You know, we think our problems are all about our problems. We think it's, oh, this, this problem is about a person, a situation, a job. You know, but I am learning it's not really about that at all. Every problem ultimately comes back to my relationship with the Lord. That's what it's all about is knowing Christ enough to sustain me in this trial. Can I be content if nothing ever changes? Is he enough for me? That is at the root of every problem. Um, Elizabeth Elliot said in every trial she ever went through, she always heard the Lord asking her the same question, will you trust me? And again, that's what every problem is about. The Lord is always saying, will you trust me in this? So when we choose to trust God, the results are this. For God, it honors him and glorifies him. For man, it brings us joy and peace of heart when we trust him. As I conclude, we're a little bit over. I want to say just a couple of words about our kids. Um, for those of us that are mothers, um, <laughs> it's hard not to relate things back to our kids, no matter what age they are. I do believe the key, really the ultimate key to trusting God is learning to give everything to him, all that we are, all that we have, and especially the things that are most precious to us. And for most mothers, what is more precious than your children? Precious little sinners that they are. They, <laughs> we love them. We love them a lot. Um, years ago, we only had one child. My oldest daughter was probably a year old. So I was really new at this parenting stuff, and we were back at our little church in Texas, and a visiting pastor came, 
and he was talking about Abraham and Isaac, and he talked about God telling Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac. And he said, you know, I really struggled with that. Here, Isaac was the son of the promise. Abraham and Sarah had waited their whole lives for Isaac. And now God was telling Abraham to to kill him. And he said, the Lord finally showed me. God never intended for Isaac to die. He wanted Abraham to die. And he said, when Abraham raised that knife to kill his son, something in Abraham died. And Abraham was never the same again. And after that, Abraham understood Isaac didn't belong to him. Isaac belonged to God. And the same man, his name was Dr. Stepp, he said, I was going through a terrible time in my ministry. I was a thousand miles away from home at a conference, and I woke up in the hotel middle of the night and with this sense that something was wrong. He had four sons. And he said, I fell on my knees by the bed and just began to cry out to God, God, just take care of my family until I get home. I'll be home. I'll be home in three days. Just take care of my family till I get there. And he said, I heard the Lord say, and John, who's going to take care of them after you get home? He said, man, you can't take care of your children when you're right there with them. Why don't you give them to me? And, you know, I was just a stupid young parent at that time, and I didn't know much, but I knew I was hearing something profound. And those words came back to me 10 years later when we were in California, and my oldest son, who was seven at the time, went to sleep one night. He woke up um, 30 minutes later with a grand mal seizure that lasted seven or eight minutes, seemed like seven or eight hours. I remember we jumped in the car, we sped to the hospital, had no idea what was going on. Um, he finally just kind of went limp, and we, we literally thought we had lost him. We get to the hospital, he finally woke up. He was temporarily paralyzed, uh, blind, just temporarily. And he spent the next five years on medicine. And I'm a nurse, I've seen stuff like that, but when it's your own seven-year-old, it's different. And I remember the overwhelming emotion of that night was utter, total, complete helplessness. And I remember I remember my husband holding him in the car, and we could do nothing, nothing, to stop what was happening. And I heard Dr. Stepp's voice and his words, man, you can't take care of your kids when you're with them. Why don't you give them to me? Now, the Lord was merciful. If you saw my son today, that tall, married two kids, the Lord was merciful, healed him from whatever caused that. But the Lord had a lesson to teach me that night, that my children were not really mine. A.W. Tozer says, we're often hindered from giving our treasures to the Lord out of fear for their safety. This is especially true when those treasures are loved relatives and friends, but we need have no such fears. Everything is safe that we commit to him, and nothing is really safe that is not committed. Our children 
belong to God. We are only stewards for a very short time. So ladies, the real key to trusting God is complete, total surrender. Um, I learned this with, again, again, you learn lessons over and over. With my last pregnancy, my daughter, I slipped her in about um, six months before I turned 40, which I actually don't recommend. But God is sovereign. That was, that was perfect. That was how it was supposed to be. But it was a very difficult pregnancy. And when I was about six months along, uh, we were in California, and we had the Northridge earthquake. Was anybody there in California? Okay. Ah, that was fun, wasn't it? Yes, that was a fun experience. Uh, we could not drink our water for months because of all the, the pipes broken in the ground. Somewhere during that time, I got sick with like a stomach thing. My doctor was very concerned that I might have picked up something from the water, which is no big deal when you're not pregnant. But if you're pregnant, you can get something called toxoplasmosis, which can be devastating, which can cause blindness, deafness, other uh, birth defects. So I go to the doctor. He does the test um, to check. It took two weeks, two weeks, ladies, for that lab test to come back, the longest two weeks of my life. And I remember one night, everyone was asleep. I am all alone in our little office. And the Lord absolutely broke my heart. And he brought me to a place of surrender that I'd never been to before. It had been a hard pregnancy, and this was kind of the icing on the cake. And I remember I finally just gave up. It's like, okay, I give up all my demands for a happy, healthy child. I give up demands for a perfect marriage, perfect children, perfect wife. I remember just praying. One by one, I began to just give my husband, my three children, and that unborn baby to him. Just, okay, Lord, they're yours. And that's not easy. That is done with many tears because you don't know what that might mean. But I just gave up. And I just said, if you want something to be wrong with this baby, it's okay. Just, just give me the grace to deal with it. And the amazing thing, when I finally start, stopped praying, I had the greatest sense of relief. Just knowing that they were his. They had always been his, but I think for the first time I, I actually acknowledged it. And after that, I wrote Elizabeth Elliot. Like I said, she's one of my heroes. And I had heard her talk about total surrender. And she wrote me back. I told her about this. And she wrote back. And this is a letter I treasure. She said, how well I identify with the misgivings about the child you now carry. What mother doesn't admit, having had such thoughts from time to time? The test comes to us not just once, but again and again. But as you have discovered, total Surrender is the key to true spiritual freedom. Here I am at 67, having lost two husbands and quite a few material possessions, and yet I am still sorely tempted to worry about my grandchildren and the world they must throw up in. I have to confess, that really encouraged me. Now, she didn't say she worried. She said she was tempted to worry. So even Elizabeth Elliot was tempted to worry. Anyway. 
that made me feel better. <laughs> but, but she says, but giving them daily to the Lord brings comfort. And here's where prayer comes in. Prayer is so important. To all of you mothers, pray for your children. Pray, never stop praying. I have given you in, your, in the back of your outline what I tried to pray for my children. If you don't have some sort of prayer journal or prayer notebook, please start one. Give each child or each anybody, your husband, anybody you want to pray with, give them their own little section, divider, put their name on it, pray for them. Jot down your prayers, and someday when they leave home, especially with your children, give them their prayer pages. Okay, that is a priceless gift for your children, your prayers for them through the years. It's a diary of their life when they're babies, toddlers growing up that you've written for them, and that, again, is a priceless treasure. Um, I've also given you a prayer um, that Elizabeth sent me by Amy Carmichael called For Our Children, and that's in your outline, too. I would read it to you, but I would cry, so you'll have to read it on your own. Now, the Lord was again so merciful, finally got that test back after two weeks, and it was negative, and my little Catherine was born beautiful and healthy. But the Lord had something to teach me that night. So ladies, we must give everything to God. There's no other choice if you want to know peace. Remember what Peter said in John 6 when the Lord said, will you go away too? And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no one else to go to but him. Think of Be Thou My Vision, that wonderful hymn. The last verse says, Heart of my own heart, whatever befall. That is the picture of total surrender. No matter what comes, we will trust him. I leave you with this scripture, 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, remember all of your suffering is according to the will of God, entrust their souls to a faithful creator and do what is right. How do we know what is right? We study his word. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot talks about doing the next thing. Just do the next thing. Keep doing what is right. And that's what you do in the midst of suffering. You trust him and you continue to do what is right. So my prayer for you and me is that we would come to know him better and learn to trust the Lord in the midst of our suffering and live a life that brings glory to him. I leave you with this benediction from Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we close this time with just great praise. Lord, great thankfulness to you for your goodness. You are so good. You are a good God, and we know that what you do towards us and what you allow is good. I pray that you would help each one of us to love you more and to trust you more and trust whatever you choose to do in our lives. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your hope. We ask
ask for encouragement. We ask for your comfort. And Lord, we trust that you will bring that to us. Lord, we love you and we just give you the rest of this day. May everything that we say and do bring honor to you. In your precious, holy, wonderful name, we pray.